It's one of the largest protests of its kind in American history. After watching yet another example of police brutality toward a black man, a multiracial group of hundreds of protesters gathered in front of the nearby police precinct, chanting, no justice, no peace, and holding up fists associated with black power. At first, the police attempted to resist the protesters, but as fires began to break out, the cops left the precinct building. Eventually, it too was on fire, and then the protests spread, maybe fueled by the frustration of disproportionate layoffs of African Americans during this terrible economic time. So night after night, from Atlanta to LA, protesters marched and chanted for justice and smashed windows and set cars on fire, costing maybe a billion dollars in damage. The president threatened to call up the military, invoking this 19th century insurrection act that everybody had to look up right away. Indeed, troops used armored personnel carriers and helicopters to frighten protesters, and at least in theory anyway, contain all this damage to property. 60 people died during the protests themselves, which is a bitterly ironic example of the brutality of American policing unleashed during protests about the brutality of American policing. That's right, we're talking about the so-called Rodney King riots of 1992. We're in the midst of another crisis around race in the U.S. Less than two weeks ago, on May 25th, Darnella Frazier, a 17-year-old African-American, recorded Minneapolis police on video, kneeling on an already handcuffed George Floyd as he begged for his life. After almost nine minutes of him struggling, saying he was unable to breathe, and even calling for his mother, George Floyd died on the pavement. The viral video broke a dam of emotion. Everyone in America soon learned that in March, police had shot Breonna Taylor in her Louisville, Kentucky apartment while she was asleep. And in February, three white men chased Ahmed Arbery through a neighborhood in southeast Georgia and gunned him down in the street, another public lynching. So American streets are once again filled with protesters chanting, I can't breathe, hands up, don't shoot, no justice, no peace, and reciting the long list of those killed by white police officers, Eric Garner, Michael Brown, Tamir Rice, Philando Castile, and on and on and on and on. If you're listening to this in the summer of 2020, then you've probably heard some good takes on all of this from the New York Times or the Washington Post, even innumerable podcasts other than this one. I don't know about your departments, Jim and Eric, but even at the department level, mine has been struggling with how to make a public anti-racism statement that doesn't just look like posturing and even why to do that. And I've also struggled with how to handle this and talk about it. We're a podcast called Speaking of Race for Crying Out Loud. And while we were once kind of idiosyncratic when we started the podcast, now this space is crowded with news outlets and social media posts, hell, even white evangelical pastors who are all suddenly talking about structural racism and systemic injustice. Yeah, and one of the reasons why it's still hard for us to talk about this kind of stuff is that we're all white and educated folks. There's this whole notion that white people should seed, not lead thing that well-meaning liberals say, not just people who actively want to distance themselves from these uprisings. 
So today we're just going to dive into the summer of 2020 protests, hopefully not just saying the same thing that everyone else is saying, although a lot of it is, but we're also going to try to address some of the questions or complaints or yeah buts that we've heard. I'm Joe. I'm Eric. I'm Jim. And let's just go ahead and dive into this first elephant in the room. This is speaking of race and we're three white folks. We need to ask what gives white people the right to talk about race? Isn't police violence against African-Americans a problem that can only be solved or spoken about by African-Americans? Shouldn't white people basically support quietly from the rear but not get out in front of the problem? Well, I think that might be our first misconception that we want to address today, which is this idea that this is a black issue or just a black issue. White people need to be talking about what's going on in the U.S. right now. And I'm going to acknowledge up front that during these kinds of times, it does feel tricky to be a white person talking about race. You know, on the one hand, I think, and I think most people agree that more white people desperately need to engage with the inequality that is being exposed through these kinds of riots. Otherwise, change is not likely to happen. But on the other hand, they have to do that sensitively or risk co-opting the conversation completely, which is already happening a lot, or silencing the voices of those who need to be heard more than they do. One compelling reason why white people need to be talking about this, Robin D'Angelo in her book, White Fragility, which is a great read if you haven't read it, talks about the phenomenon of white innocence and white exceptionalism. She didn't coin those terms. There's a great book that was actually published in 2016 by Gloria Wecker called White Innocence that's about Dutch colonial history and how the sort of modern day Dutch system allows white Dutch people to claim this kind of racial exceptionalism or or innocence from having a race while still having done the kinds of atrocious things that they did under colonialism. Same thing in the United States. So D'Angelo talks about this in the book, White Fragility. And what she's saying is the obvious fact that white people in the United States for hundreds of years have been people who don't have to think about race, right? They're people who don't have race. So people who have race are everybody but white people, right? And I think we've talked in the podcast before that it was maybe sometime around the election of Obama that people began in the United States to understand that whiteness is a race too on sort of a large scale. But I think there's still this tendency among white people, even well-meaning liberal white people who don't think of themselves as racist, to think of the race stuff as over there, as something that other people need to be dealing with. But of course, silence by those who are in power, which is still white people in this country overwhelmingly, leads to violence against those who don't have that power. The analogy to me is like, imagine if we had just all said, well, you know, the Holocaust, that's a Jewish problem. Let's leave it up to the Jewish people to figure it out. Never mind that they're, you know, being carted off and killed in mass. It's their thing to deal with. That's a yeah. good point, Joe. So on the one hand, we have this problem of white silence. But then there's this other problem. It's almost the flip side of that coin. It's white people virtue signaling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. So what is virtue signaling? It's really just communication that has the purpose of demonstrating to a different audience one's moral standing and also one's group identity. So white people tend to think that we are affecting real substantial change by doing sort of token things like, for instance, putting black squares over our profile pictures on social media and saying blackout 
or writing formal statements against racism. These things are heartfelt. I don't, I don't think we can accuse anybody of not caring about these issues, but it starts to feel hollow when everybody is doing these signals, but then yeah. nothing really ever changes. There's mm-hmm. even a term for this now just called slacktivism where you're publishing stuff on your Twitter feed and that's basically it. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's a problem because I think it allows people who might otherwise feel compelled to take action to feel sort of excused from it. Right. Again, it's yeah. like white exceptionalism in action. That is the idea that white people are different and don't have yeah. to engage with these topics. You could also think of it in terms of social desirability bias, which is a fancy word for the phenomenon in the social sciences, where when you interview somebody about something, they will often tell you what will make them look good rather than what they actually feel or think or do. So for instance, medical professionals deal with this all the time when they ask people, how many drinks do you have per week? People uh, I never drink. It. <laughs> right. right. And so so that's that's an example of social desirability bias. People know they're not supposed to drink, and so they systematically underreport, usually by a factor of about one half, how much they actually drink. And doctors know this and have to just sort of work with that. The same goes for stuff like what we're talking about right now, virtue signaling. It's not necessarily that people don't care when they do virtue signaling, but there does come a point where some entities appear to be doing this simply because not doing it will make them look bad. So at the individual level, this might look like political correctness. Political correctness is an example of social desirability bias. People know that it doesn't reflect well upon them as individuals in most circles in the United States these days to come across as blatantly racist. And so one way to not do that is to jump on the bandwagon of putting your black square over your social media. So, of course, even though we're talking about these things in terms of, you know, modern social media, none of this virtue signaling to people is new. I came across a very good article written before I was born, embarrassingly, that adopted this term called the radical chic, uh, written by Tom Wolfe about a party that he attended where uh, Leonard Bernstein, the famous composer, invited a bunch of Black Panthers to a party at his house. And Wolf was like snuck into the party and then writes about how fake that this was. And he he has this great quote. Do you guys mind if I read a quote from the article? You are the quote reader. Okay. It's usually depressing, but this is actually kind of funny. So I thought maybe it'd be nice. All right. So here's a quote from his article in New York Magazine published in 1970. But as in most human endeavors focused upon an ideal there seemed to be some double-track thinking going on. On the first track, well, one does have a sincere concern for the poor and the underprivileged and an honest outrage against discrimination. One's heart does cry out upon hearing how the police have dealt with, in this case, the Black Panthers. And then he talks about the alignment of all these lower-class whites with the police and how that's undesirable from the, the case of upper-class whites in New York City. Then one understands why poor Blacks like the Black Panthers might feel driven to drastic solutions any way one truly feels for them. On the other hand, in the second track in one's mind, that is, one also has a sincere concern for maintaining a proper East Side lifestyle in New York society, and this concern is just as sincere as the first and just as deep. It really is. It really does become part of one's psyche. 
For example, one must have a weekend place in the country or by the shore all year round, preferably, but certainly from the middle of May to the middle of September, it's hard to get across to outsiders an understanding of how absolute such apparently trivial needs are. One feels them in his solar plexus. Wow. So, you know, Tom Wolfe is talking about the upper class in New York City in the late 60s. But there's all this subtler stuff that we have also now that's a kind of virtue signaling. So mm-hmm. examples would include African-Americans right now are dealing with white people doing a thing called oversympathy. It's just another kind of virtue signaling. Which is like the white people, make sure you're checking in on all your black friends. Exactly. Which is what everyone was saying when this first happened. The reason why this is a problem isn't because we shouldn't be nice to each other or something. It's because it's not really for the person that we're contacting. It's really for us. It's to make us feel better because then we can say that we're not racist. Yeah. So I think what you're saying, Eric, is it's it's not that, that being nice or caring about other people's well-being is some bad thing and that we're saying you shouldn't do that. It's Instead, it's the performative aspect of this. It's sort of doing it because part of oneself knows that one is going to be socially rewarded for doing that. So exactly. balancing silence or apathy on the one hand, and this kind of like, you might call it conspicuous communication on the other is, yeah. is difficult. Yeah. And we're focusing on individuals, but of course it's by no means just individuals that are doing this. Corporations totally. have whole departments to enable them to jump on board in order to avoid criticism in the environmental movement. This is called greenwashing. And in the sort of Uber economy, the gig economy, it's called share washing. Perhaps what we're seeing now should be called black washing. Maybe we can coin that term if it hasn't been coined before. Yeah, so, right. Yeah, right. I actually just today saw a hilarious example of this from the candy called Gushers. Oh, yeah. And- they like the... the- quote unquote fruit snacks that are really just yeah 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 exactly so listen to this tweet that comes out from gushers gushers wouldn't be gushers without the black community and your voices we're working with fruit by the foot on creating spaces to amplify that we see you we stand with you i mean it's not that the sentiment's bad right it's not a bad sentiment it's just that of course it's in service of creating a kind of image to keep up consumption of one's products right it's totally hollow yeah yeah for real especially because there's no there's nothing concrete there it's creating space to amplify that what does that actually mean what is that going to look like yeah by gushers (laughs) right (laughs) no less yeah this is obviously all over the place like amazon is doing it you know everyone is doing that and the question is sort of like what are the implications of not doing that yeah and how how could it be done more sincerely and i think one way in which people are trying right now in the media and other places to think critically and and more concretely about how to do some kind of something that doesn't ring so hollow is through looking for things that could concretely be changed. And one of the big ones that I've noticed in the reading I've been doing lately, and I'm sure you have too, is uh, talking about police reform. Yeah. And I mean, this is a huge topic in itself. I have a lot to say about it. But it the idea here is that there's been all this rhetoric about how, you know, the police system is really okay. It's about a few bad apples in an otherwise okay system. You actually hear that phrase, bad apples, a lot in the news. 
leading up to what's happening now. And I think there's real there's real validity to looking at the policing system as not just a matter of bad apples, but as a system that is fundamentally broken. I don't think it's broken. I think it's functioning exactly the way it's intended to function. You're right. I shouldn't say broken. Um, yeah. You're right. It is totally not broken. So let's talk about that. So the police force in its very origins is in fact a racist system. That doesn't necessarily mean that every police person is racist. Not at all. That's not what I'm saying. But the system itself is racist. It was literally designed in its early years to maintain white power over black people. So the U.S. police force has its origins in slave patrols. The whole point of slave patrols were these like vigilante groups of basically any white man who could be called upon if a slave was moving about in a way they shouldn't be, such as, you know, trying to escape. And the system empowered white men to get together and dispense justice, scare quotes, in the form of corporal punishment, physical violence, lynching, etc. So I was reading about, this is an example of the, the slave patrols. I was reading about Nat Turner's, I guess they call it rebellion, slave yeah. uprising, whatever, in 1831. And I guess that like the day that that happened, the local sheriff just goes around deputizing every single white man and arming every single white man in mm-hmm. the area. And then just says, okay, scatter through the countryside and just start shooting because all of the people around here are probably guilty in one way or another with this slave insurrection. What's weird is that it's like two dozen men, two dozen slaves were involved in the insurrection, but people started doing those deputizations as far away as New Orleans and as far north as Baltimore, even though it was nowhere near those cities, just white officials started deputizing men and arming them specifically because they were afraid that there would be larger slave insurrections in 1831. That's the beginning. Yeah, absolutely. And and so, you know, a system that is in its very origins designed to maintain white power over black people. There's also been a huge amount of violence right now in response to the protests that are yep. going on, which is ironic and really terrible to watch. Um, We should link in our show notes. There's this crowdsourced spreadsheet that's being put together by a criminal defense lawyer that really carefully and meticulously documents over 400 instances of police brutality with pictures and videos, in case you don't want to believe it, just during these current protests. And so this is not something that is, has gone away. So what are we supposed to do? Yeah, I mean, that's that's the question, right? I think one way to understand this is to look at the difference between prejudice, bigotry, and racism. I think the pushback against the idea of police reform is this idea that if we say this system of policing is racist, then we're calling all police racists, which is not at all what we're doing. Prejudice is when a person negatively prejudges another person, right? Bigotry is when they act on that prejudice. But it doesn't necessarily require like a system or a, a set of powers in place. Racism is the system that allows the racial group that's already in power to retain power, right? So we need to be looking at the whole system. Yeah. And that's what these conversations in the media right now about police reform are are revolving around. Um, so data scientist Samuel Singyangwe, who has been doing work on policing for a long time, has put forth a whole bunch of data-driven best practices for police reform 
that are really relevant right now. His group has mounted this incredibly meticulous set of studies on police behavior and violence and litigation and even policing contracts. And, and they've, he and his group have had to do this because unbelievably, the federal government does not track those data, which uh, is nuts, uh, right? I mean, the federal government does not have data on police shootings. Yeah which is crazy. So, I mean, that would that itself would be a great place to start to answer your question, Jim, about what we should do. <laughs> um, but anyway, Sinyangwe's group has, has drawn some pretty common sense conclusions by looking at this really large scale data, which is like, you know, body cams don't work. Uh, Racial sensitivity trainings don't work. Wow. Yeah. In places where the police are getting military grade equipment, more police shootings happen. So let's demilitarize, right? Let's up the legal consequences for use of force. Right now, police union contracts pretty much regularly expunge misconduct records and make it very, very difficult to do misconduct investigations because they are usually done internally. And so it becomes possible for somebody who's under investigation for misconduct to simply leave the precinct and go somewhere else. Mm. Sinyangwe's group is recommending essentially more surveillance, right? So doing things like using predictive policing on the police rather than on potential perpetrators, <laughs> um, increasing oversight from the outside, perhaps by Department of Justice. Hmm. And Some finally, Department of Justice. Yeah. Right. When yeah, it's functioning right. properly. Yeah. Yeah, for real. And, and finally, having non-police <laughs> alternatives in place especially for things like 911 calls related to mental illness and having other community organizations that can function to support people rather John than Oliver. Yeah. Right. Yeah. He <laughs> talked about that today too. Yeah. And I mean, this is all really great to think about, but in a lot of ways, I think police violence is a symptom or, or perhaps a manifestation of broader problems. Jim and I were just talking a minute ago and Jim, I'm going to jump on what you said. Jim said, I think if we fired every police person in the United States right now, every single one of them, we would still have structural racism, yep. right? So this is a great place to start. Don't get me wrong. The police system, I really do believe needs fixing, but it's still kind of a symptom of a larger problem, right? Yeah. That is underlying structural racism. And, and this has been a focus of this podcast since the beginning, right? And all of our teaching careers. Absolutely. <laughs> Underneath this, there are these really, really baked in ideas that have circulated for century upon century upon century. So one yeah. of them that has been circulating around way too much, sometimes whispered, especially if it's following something that would be seen as virtue signaling by a white person seconds earlier in the yeah. case that I'm thinking of. It's this notion that there's something essential to black people that they just, they keep rioting. Mm. They keep, they keep destroying stuff in their own cities. Why can't they live peacefully? Yeah. And it's, it's a variant, right? On the whole idea of black criminality as an essential biological trait part. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I think we've seen this notion come out over and over and over again, going back and looking again at the, Things that people said after the Rodney King stuff in 1992, looking at what people said after the, the uprisings, after the killing of Trayvon Martin in 2012, and then again with Michael Brown and Eric Garner in 2014. It's like, if people don't riot, then white people just don't pay any attention to these death by cop instances. Mm -hmm. And if there are lootings and burnings and 
throwing over cars and stuff like that. Well, then white people discredit all these movements by pointing at that property damage. So the political class will just sort of angrily talk about law and order and how changes can only be made if people are peaceful. But of course, as soon as all that rage that causes the destruction has dissipated, then the white people don't do anything. It's like the super catch 22, right? Well, I mean, of course, let's just break down that baseline assumption. Obviously, white people also riot. Exactly. Often for really ridiculous reasons. Yeah, I mean, there's example after example of people setting things on fire because their sports team won, let alone <laughs> when they lose. <laughs> you know? right. It happens all the time. And And come on, we just saw actual protest with armed protesters walking into state houses and threatening the actual government with weapons and like nothing happened to those people. They got what they wanted. Oh, are you talking about the Michigan protests against the quarantine? You could talk about that or you could talk about the thing that happened at Charlottesville in 2017 over the removing of the Robert E. Lee statue. It's, it's not the case that <laughs> black people riot any more than white people or that it's any more violent than the kinds of stuff that white people do on a regular basis. It's just the way that we describe that old, old, old idea about the essential black criminal. Or maybe if we go back just before the civil war, the, the animalistic or bestial nature of yes. the black body. And mm. we, we've used those animal terms to talk about black men in particular and their inability to sort of live peacefully without violence for hundreds and hundreds of years. I mean, even on this podcast, we talked about in 1799, yeah. Charles White saying that these are essential traits in black heads. But of course, ironically, all of his measuring shows that black heads aren't any smaller than white heads. <laughs> He just says that their brains must be allocated differently so that more brain real estate was devoted to instinct in the case of people of African descent and on cognition on people of white descent. So we're going to look for those essential traits and try to ground our condemnations of people of color in some sort of essential traits, even if we don't find them, Yeah, which is just yeah. nuts. It is nuts. I also want to make the point that a lot of the so-called rioting that is going on right now is happening because white people are doing it. So take Eugene, Oregon, where I live, for instance, we had a riot a couple weeks ago, and this is a fairly sleepy little town. It's a very white town. There were people of color at this protest. There were white people at this protest. The people who were rioting, who were burning down the five guys were white people. Yeah. And this has happened so much that the Southern Poverty Law Center has come out with a statement. And I want to, can I read the quote? You want to read the quote, quote reader? No, you do it. You do it. Yeah, you do it. And they, they say, one thing that white people can and should do right now is, quote, acknowledge that white folks, rioters, not protesters, have again and without invitation hijacked, sidelined, and distracted from black communities' leadership attempts to stop black lynchings in America. So Maybe they're words, virtue signaling. <laughs> with their rioting? The SPLC, yeah. <laughs> oh, no, no, I don't mean the SPLC. I mean the rioters. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> they're doing a different kind of virtue signaling. <laughs> yes. 
Yeah, it's unbelievable. I mean, it's it's become enough of a problem that the SPLC has had to come out with a statement essentially telling white people to sit down and stop rioting so that they will stop making black communities look bad. Yeah. And so the last thing that we should talk about is that things won't change, the misconception about things not being able to change. And when we get to that, I am clearly the wrong person to be taking this particular <laughs> issue because I've seen so many cycles of these things that I don't really hold out much hope for meaningful change. Huh. As Heather Ann Thompson, the professor of history at the University of Michigan, said just recently, because racial injustice just seems to be baked into the DNA of this country, periodically and throughout history, there come these moments when people just can't take it anymore. Yeah, yeah, that is cyclical. For sure. My first experience with the so-called race riots was driving past Watts in the summer of 1965 huh. from my 1959 white Impala convertible with the top <laughs> down. I could see and smell the smoke rising in the already very brown L.A. sky, huh. but I had no idea what was going on. And in my ignorant white privilege bubble, I never even took the time to learn about it. It turns out that after an aggressive arrest by L.A.'s finest, a small scuffle ensued with the family of the man arrested, and that turned into a huge community battle with police. Over the six days of unrest, there were 34 deaths, over 1,000 injuries, nearly 3,500 arrests, and over $40 million in 1965 dollars of property damage. Wow. The governor of California appointed a commission headed by a former CIA director to investigate and make recommendations. And they said that beyond the initial arrest incident, the McCone Commission identified the riot causes to be unemployment, huh. poor schools, and poor housing for African-Americans in Watts. Huh. The commission recommended a series of measures that were mostly aimed at decreasing the massive economic inequality that's at the root of systemic racism in the U.S. Yeah. Of course, most of the recommendations were never implemented. Right. Then, as I aged a little bit and got not any wiser, uh, three riots later, counting Chicago in 1966, which was supposedly the first Puerto Rican riots. Uh. And then the long, hot summer of 1967, which featured the Newark and Detroit riots, but actually involved 159 race riot incidents across the country. President Johnson appointed another commission to investigate. Oh, yeah. The mm -hmm. Kerner Commission issued its report at the end of February 1968, having found that the main causes of the riots, aside from police practices, were unemployment, Jeez. poor schools, and poor housing. <gasps> Shock! Yeah. The 600-plus page report was ignored almost as soon as it was issued, since a new round of riots broke out across the country in most major cities less than six weeks later following mm -hmm. the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. Uh -huh. On a totally personal note, I spent 1967 and 68 on active duty as a Navy corpsman trying to avoid being shipped to Vietnam with <laughs> Marines. 67 was the summer of love. It was also the summer of drugs in San Francisco for me and my fellow white privileges. But even if I had still been in college, I'm sure I would have been just as naive and blasé about the events unfolding in the country 
until I got tear gassed and shot at myself in 1969 at Berkeley. And then I started to think about things in a slightly different way. So what can I say about will things change? Sure, things have changed since the 1960s. Although the polarization engendered by the current denizen of the White House isn't much greater than the polarization that the country was experiencing during Vietnam, you should have heard some of the arguments I had with my soon-to-be father-in-law who had parachuted behind German lines on D-Day as part Uh of the Easy Company Band of Brothers. Mm. Yes, today we can find kindred spirits to gin us up much more readily through social media. But we also had a president in 1968 who had pushed through the Voting Rights Act in 1965 Uh, and actually took advantage of Martin Luther King's assassination in the uprising to push through the Equal Housing Act of 1968. Today, all our president can do is try to make political capital out of further dividing the country. So the calls that people are issuing to vote in November to change things are a sensible call to make But ultimately, in my humble opinion, they're unlikely to lead to meaningful change for the better. Uh, Our current Cheeto in charge and his (laughs) Justice Department and his Supreme Court Uh, are all devoted to suppressing non-white voting and ensuring a continuation of minority rule aimed at bolstering the endangered white supremacy at the core of our non-representational democracy. Yeah. Mm hmm. So what happens if everybody does come out and vote our current president out of office? I think that it's no more likely that progress will be made on deconstructing the systemic racism that underpins every aspect of American society than it has been in all of the past episodes of racial unrest. I'm not saying don't vote. That doesn't mean don't vote. Definitely do and scream some more while wearing your mask with a paper towel inside for a filter. (laughs) I'm old. I need you guys to take care (laughs) of my germs. Exactly. Maybe my grandkids' grandkids will then eventually know a more unbiased racial environment if we do everything right. But ultimately, what has to change is the white supremacist system that has maintained the inequality over the last several hundreds of years. Yep. Mm. <sighs> wow, yeah. we've still got a lot of unanswered questions, yeah. like what needs to change right now and then also in the longer term. But what do you yeah. guys have to say? I mean, it, the degree to which this is another cog in the machine of this cyclical pattern is really disconcerting. But I mean, I think in this current moment, There's maybe just one really crucial question getting back to the points you just made, Jim, which is do white people want police and other authorities to just protect white interests? And by white interests, we do often mean things like property interests. Yeah. I don't know, guys. I guess I feel like there's a good reason to think that the answer to your question, Joe, is that most white folks just don't care enough. Amen, brother. I'm thinking that, uh, so Nancy McLean, a historian, wrote the book in 2017, Democracy in Chains. And she detailed in that book this 50-year-long dedication to basically undo any federal incursion on behalf of African Americans that's happened since Brown v. Board of Education in 1954. Mm -hmm. And then this movement got picked up and championed by the Koch brothers, who are dumping billions of dollars into state and local and even congressional elections 
Mm. Not necessarily because they think they're being racist. They always say, oh, we're not racist, but but it's because they keep wanting to keep property rights of the few to be restricted to just the wealthy over any sort of anything, any freedom, any equality, equality, right, for the many. So what I think is interesting is that McLean actually starts the book with John C. Calhoun all the way back in the really early 19th century, who was already defining this very explicitly in South Carolina. And then his two different terms under two different presidents as vice president, and then as a Senator after he was vice president, and then as a secretary of state, after he was a Senator, he's Mm. articulating this notion that black lives don't matter. The only thing that really matters is white property. And I think the super depressing thing about that argument is that prior to the emancipation proclamation, Black lives did have value. They were cash value because they exactly. were property. Mm. And, and frankly, after the Civil War, that notion of black bodies having cash value sort of drops away. Yeah. And black lives don't matter enough to white people that are in power. I think perhaps one of the most telling incidents that's happened recently is actually the Amy Cooper incident, which is yeah. the one where the white woman who has had her dog off leash in this section of Central Park in New York that's kind of wooded and a little bit wild, came upon an African-American man who was bird watching and called the police on him. Yeah. Even though she was the one who had her dog unleashed because he said something along the lines of, excuse me, ma'am, your dog's not supposed to be unleashed here. This is like a bird sanctuary, you know? And, and I mean, I think, the reason why that incident is so revealing is because it's okay for a woman like Amy Cooper to assume, and it's, it's almost automatic for her to assume that a black man who's minding his own business, not breaking any rules is more in the wrong than a white woman who isn't minding her business and is breaking the rules. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, like, she's drawing exactly. on that essentialism of black criminality that we just talked about, yeah. but the way yeah. that she d- talks I I don't know if you guys noticed this, but her voice keeps getting more sort of frantic and high pitched as if the more distressed that she sounds to the dispatcher, the more likely that police are going to come with weapons hot. Guns drawn. Yeah, exactly. In riot gear. Exactly. To me, somehow that is, I mean, it's not that it's more disturbing than the the death of George Floyd, but it's like that Tom Wolfe thing that I read earlier. It's it's that people in liberal New York City can do this virtue signaling that I care about black people. But when push comes to shove, the power structure is reinforcing white rights, not yeah. black lives. And she's absolutely willing to draw on that. And I bet you anything that at some point in the last few years, she's had like a Black Lives Matter or she's changed her Instagram page to have a black, black square yeah. on it or something like yeah. that, right? Yeah, I mean, her response to this was, but I'm not racist, and now my life is ruined. I think this is actually the crux of what we began with today, which is why white people should talk about this, right? White silence leads to more violence. Yeah. Yes, the silence of white people leads to more violence, not necessarily because the white people who aren't saying things are bad people, but because the general current of American civilization for the last... 400 years has been toward white supremacy. So white people do need to talk about this. What we're seeing right now, it happened in Rodney King in 92. It happened in 68. 
It happened in the thirties. It happened in the teens. It happened in the 19th century. And we're probably likely to see more of it. I wish that there was a more hopeful message than that. No, I absolutely guarantee you will see many more instances in your lifetime. Hmm. So do we have anything hopeful to end on? Talk. I guess white people have to discuss race. Get over it. Yeah. I mean, we got to teach this stuff. We got to talk about this stuff. We can't be so afraid of our virtue being besmirched by sounding racist that we just stay so uneducated about actual systemic racism. It's not a black person's job to do all this work. We need to lift the burden since we put it on. Yep. Lift the knee. Man, that's a good way to end it. All right. So I'm Eric, the historian of science. I'm Jim, the physical anthropologist. And I'm Joe, the cultural anthropologist. And you have been listening to Speaking of Race. Find and follow us on Facebook at SOR Podcasts or on Instagram and Twitter at Speaking of Race. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. Be safe. Bye.